Welcome to the Dialogue Book Report, where we talk about literature of interest to LDS readers, part of the Dialogue Podcast Network. I'm Andrew Hall, a book review editor at Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought, coming to you from Fukuoka, Japan. Bartis Fisher and Virginia Sorensen were two of the leading lights in a golden age of Mormon literature, which occurred from the late 1930s through the 1950s. Today, I'm joined by two of the leading lights of this generation of Mormon cultural commentators, Stephen Carter and Michael Austin. Even though they are both actively writing and commentating on contemporary issues, they both decided that authors writing 75 or so years ago were worthy of renewed attention today and wrote biographies and literary critiques about them. Stephen Carter, the author of Virginia Sorensen, pioneering Mormon author, is the editor at Sunstone, a position he has held since 2008. And we'll be talking uh, about some of Sunstone's recent activities later in our discussion. He earned an MFA degree in fiction and a PhD in narrative studies from the University of Alaska Fairbanks and a Master of Education degree from the Montana State University, Bozeman. He's the author of the essay collection, Word of the Night. He co-wrote the iPlate series of Book of Mormon graphic novels, personal favorite, uh, the young adult novel, The Hand of Glory, and edited the multi-author anthology, Moth and Rust, Mormon Encounters with Death. And he regularly publishes personal essays at the Sunstone Podcast. Stephen, thank, uh, welcome. Thank you. Michael Austin is the author of Vardis Fisher, a Mormon novelist, he is the executive vice president for, exact, for academic affairs at the University of Evansville. He was previously a, uh, where he was has been a professor of, oh, sorry, second, and he was previously a professor of English. Uh, his many books, including Rereading Job, Understanding the Ancient World's Greatest Poem, and We Must Not Be Enemies, Restoring America's Civic Tradition. He is co-founder and press director at BCC Press, and has won AML awards for religious nonfiction and criticism, and received the AML 2022 Lifetime Achievement Award. Michael, welcome. Thank you. Okay. So we're talking about these two authors, Bartis Fisher and Virginia Sorensen, uh, and some hopefully about Maureen Whipple. I uh, co-edited a, a collection of her previously unpublished work uh, through BCC Press a couple of years ago, and she's part of that generation. So hopefully they'll all be in there. And so this group is sometimes called The Lost Generation by Mormon commentators like Ed Geary and, and Gene England. Uh, or a golden age. Uh, Stevens have suggested new pioneers. Uh, Michael, may I start with you? What? Why is this a group that's lumped together? What is it that 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 uh, binds them together? So there was a pretty remarkable flowering of Mormon literature that began in 1939 with Vardis Fisher's Children of God, and then uh, between 1939 and 1942 seven novels appeared from New York presses that had uh, not overwhelmingly positive, but also not overwhelmingly negative portrayals of Mormons and Mormonism. Uh, and then throughout the 1940s, you had uh, you know about a dozen writers who were Latter-day Saints from the Utah-Idaho area who uh, made some inroads into the New York publishing market. So this includes Artis Fisher and Virginia Sorensen and Maureen Whipple, it includes um, Richard Scowcroft. It includes Ardeth Keneally. It includes uh, Sam Taylor, um, Paul Bailey. So uh, you just have a, a lot of these writers all of a sudden writing fiction about Latter-day Saints and Latter-day Saint culture and the region that the Mormons colonized. And some of it's historical fiction, some of it's contemporary fiction, but none of it is the sort of overwhelmingly positive home literature, Nephi Anderson spin, and none of it is the uh, Mormons-ass masquerading, wife-stealing, 
um, wagon train burning outlaws that you get in the works of Zane Gray and Arthur Conan Doyle and uh, every diet novel about Mormons published in the late 19th century. Steve, why do you call them new pioneers? Um, it's a good question. So the way that Ed Geary and Richard Craycroft presented the last generation, so-called, um, these authors were reacting to something. Geary felt that they were reacting to the economic stagnation in rural Utah and felt that it also represented a decline in the church. And so they lost their faith. And Craycroft thought that they were drawn to the culture of the outside world. And then they tried to, quote, persuade the readers that true happiness lies not in the sequestered valleys of the West, but in the cultural capitals of the world. So they were lost to the church. Now, I think that there is truth to both those scenarios. But I think that the lost generation writers were also being just as much pioneers as their ancestors were. Because, they, see, they were writing during a time when Utah was really getting connected with the rest of America. Mormonism was taking huge steps toward assimilating with American culture. First, by renouncing polygamy, and then by sending its young people out to flagship universities so that they could bring knowledge back to Utah. So there was this new frontier opening up, and Mormonism was trying to figure out how to forge an identity in connection with America. And the thing is, it had no idea how to do that. So it had to experiment. The entire church was experimenting with how to do this. And that's what the lost generation was doing. They were the first writers to really explore the possibilities and the difficulties inherent with this reconnection. And I think this was especially true of Virginia because three of her novels are specifically about Mormons who went into the wider world and were then returning to Utah. And it's really interesting to see how differently these characters fare when they return and how her imagination on that subject's changed. So I want to call the lost generation the new pioneers because they went into unknown literary territory and helped Mormonism imagine how it could integrate with America while keeping its unique identity. And at the same time, just as a bonus, they wrote some of the best novels about Mormons that we have. They certainly did. Well, tell us about tell us about these authors. Um, a little bit of biography about them. So, Mike, can you tell us about Vardis Fisher? Yeah. So, Vardis Fisher uh, was born in Annis, Idaho, uh, Snake River Valley, in 1895. And he's really the last pioneer generation, and he presents himself in this. I like Stephen's term, the uh, new pioneers, because Fisher was one of the last of the old pioneers. His father and uncle uh, pioneered dry farming techniques in the Snake River Valley. This was completely untamed land. It was like the last place to be settled. Um, he's born in such a small well, not even a small town. He he's born at Annis, which is a small town. He lives for his formative years. He lives on the banks of the Snake River in a house where the closest neighbor is ten miles away. Uh, except for the family that lives across the river, but they can only visit in the summertime because they have to swim because there's no bridge and there aren't any boats. 
So, and, and actually one of his novels, which I, I'll talk a little bit about, Dark Ridwell, is about that family that lives across the, the river from them. Um, he grows up in a Mormon family, but not in a Mormon church. There is no Mormon church. There's no any kind of church. Uh, but he grows up with Mormon parents. Uh, his parents actually had been sent by Brigham Young to colonize uh, the Snake River Valley. But he attends ward schools, uh, and then he is one of the first graduates from Rigby High School in 1915, which makes him 20 years old, because at that time you could be 20 years old and graduating from high school. Uh, he's baptized, finally, into the church when he's 20, and he contemplates going on a mission, but does not choose to do it. He goes to the University of Utah, and pretty soon he has renounced his Mormonism, um, and he uh, gets a degree in English from the University of Utah. Uh, he goes to the University of Chicago, gets a PhD, uh, starts teaching at the University of Utah. He's a really bad teacher. He doesn't like teaching. He doesn't like students. He wants to be a, a writer. He goes to New York for about three years and works at Washington Square University, meets Thomas Wolfe, um, puts out a lot of novels, actually publishes one um, it's called Toilers of the Hills, and it's about his uncle pioneering the Snake River Valley. Uh, he decides he doesn't want to teach at all. He goes back to Hangerman, Idaho, where he lives for the rest of his life, which is why I don't buy uh, Richard Craycroft's argument that these writers lusted after the cultural centers of, of the of the East. I mean, Hangerman, Idaho was not a cultural <laughs> center of anywhere. Um, and then he puts out... Uh, throughout his life, 36 novels. And uh, the first seven of them are Mormon uh, in that they deal with this area, with this Antelope Valley area and the Mormon colonizers of that area. Uh, then he writes his, his probably most famous novel, Children of God, which is uh, a Mormon migration novel. And it's not the first Mormon migration novel. There were about 10 of them written between 1930 and 1939. But it's the one that hits the bestseller list. It wins a very prestigious award. Uh, it becomes the number two bestseller in the country, right behind John Steinbeck's uh, Grapes of Wrath. Uh, it makes him a, a tidy sum. He builds a home that he lives in for the rest of his life. He writes a, a bunch of other historical novels. He writes novels about the uh, Lewis and Clark expedition, the Donner Party, um, the Hudson Valley Traders' War. Uh, and then he decides in 1943, he wants to spend the rest of his life telling the story of humankind with this great epic series of historical novels called uh, The Testament of Man. And it starts uh, at the very beginning of history with the uh, Austriopithecus. I had to figure out how to say that word, <laughs> early primates. It goes all the way to... Um, he rewrites the autobiography, the autobiographical novel that he published in four volumes in the 1930s. And that becomes the end of this. And in, in the meantime, he just he has novels about the great decisive periods of history, especially in the Judeo-Christian tradition. For most of his life, he's an atheist. For most of his life, he ridicules religion, uh, but he also is is kind of obsessed by it. And most of the novels are rewritings of the Old or the New Testament in, in the Testament of Man series. Uh, he dies in 1968, um, having written 36 novels, 
a dozen or so other kinds of nonfiction books and incidental pieces and occasional pieces. Uh, he had a weekly column for years that ran throughout Idaho, syndicated. Um, and he really is the first writer to take the Mormon cultural sphere and write about it as a coherent region at a time when regional fiction is is the most important kind of fiction uh, in the world. I mean, in the United States, this is this is Faulkner, this is Steinbeck, this is Robert Frost. So he's he's kind of a, a check the box Rocky Mountains regionalist, but he is the first person to make this what we can now call the Mormon cultural region to put it on the literary map and to do it in a way that got quite a bit of respect by the New York literary establishment, though not necessarily a lot of sales of any of his books other than Children of God. Something that dogged all of them. Something that what? I'm sorry? Something that dogged all of these writers. Yes. That's what, the one the one big novel that gets their name on the map and never quite never can quite sell again after that so much. And with one exception, Ardeth Keneally had four or five book club uh, novels. She's the one um, uh, just wrote a lot of these sort of Jane Austen-y type novels about uh, Brigham Young and, and his wives. And uh, she actually did really, really well. Well, look into this. Now, Virginia Sorensen, of course, she, she does have the one big uh, novel about Mormons at first, but then she has this second career as a children's author. So she does have, she certainly does have uh, other claims to fame out there. So Steve, tell us about Virginia. Well, let me connect her with Vardis Fisher really quick with probably, <laughs> so when she put out On This Star, that was the second book that she put out, Vardis Fisher reviewed it and he said, on the cover, it said that she studied creative writing at Stanford. As one who taught creative writing for many years at one university or another and perceived at last that only an ignoramus can imagine or a fraud pretend that writing can be taught, I can sympathize with Mrs. Sorensen in her unfortunate waste of time. I don't know why she allowed her publisher to print such a damning revelation. When she forgets what she was taught at Stanford, she will write better books than this one. <laughs> Not a lot of plot of love loss between those two, I suppose. <laughs> well, not a lot of love loss. It sounded like uh, Fisher hated teaching and yeah. <laughs> out of university as good as he could. So anyway, um, uh, Virginia was born in 1912 in... Uh, Rats, where was she born? American Fork? No, Provo. Provo. She was born in Provo, and then she moved to uh, Manti for her formative years which was something that absolutely affected the rest of her writing. And then she moved up to American Fork where she went to high school. And then she went to BYU for like a semester before going off to the University of Missouri to, to work on uh, journalism. And then she came back, met this guy named Fred Sorensen, got her journalism degree at BYU. And then he got his PhD and she started following him around the United States as he went from teaching post to teaching post. And while she did that, she was writing her novels. And uh, as you say, um, the most important 
if, if, if you ask anybody, like like any librarian to say, who's Virginia Sorensen? They'll say, oh, she won a Newbery Award. That is absolutely the reason why she is remembered. The Newbery Award is the highest honor in children's literature. You're immortal after you have that. So it's, it's probably like us here and a dozen other people who even realized that she wrote stuff about Mormons. But of course, they were wonderful. So um, I think that these uh, novels that she wrote are actually even more relevant now than they were back when they were published. I think she was way ahead of her time. And hopefully we get to talk a lot about that as things go on. Oh, I forgot to mention, she got divorced from her first husband, Fred, after having two children with him, and she married Alec Waugh, who was the brother of Evelyn Waugh, and spent about a dozen years being married to him, traveling the world with him. It's actually, it's a really interesting story. You should read this 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 this, this biography about Virginia Sorensen. It, it's really interesting. It is, it is. It was really interesting. And she's, I gotta say, out of, say, Fisher and Sorensen and Maureen Whipple, She's the one I'd want to actually spend time with. Green <laughs> Whipple is, is is a very tragic figure and very self-pitying and has was very unhappy for a lot of her life. And Varda seems rather a kind of unpleasant person. I'm not sure exactly, but but boy, Virginia, I'd love to be with her. She just sounds like a a, a wonderful person, uh, it, uh, you know, an, an interesting and just a, uh, just a more warm person. I I get the impression. Um, well, okay, let's go ahead and stick with you, Stephen. Why, why is this? Why, why is she important? What, what meaning does her work have? Do you think, especially for today, for say Mormons and post-Mormons, what, why do you think that we should we should know about her? All right. So, as as we've been talking about, the time when Virginia and Vardis were working was a lot like our time. Utah was newly connected with the rest of the United States, and that meant that all sorts of cultural and informational influences were going through Utah for the first time. And it's a lot like when the internet got really pop popular. So Mormons during the early part of the 20th century, who had been sequestered away in the valleys of Zion, were suddenly much more likely to encounter influences from the outside world, much as today's Mormons are much more likely to encounter, you know, uncorrelated information, the masses of it that are out there. And so in both cases, people were destabilized. They had to wrestle with what this new information and experience meant to their worldview. So Virginia explored that situation directly. She focused three of her novels, I consider them a kind of trilogy, specifically on people who had gone through what we would call a faith crisis, and some of whom left more Mormonism. So her presentation of the interior lives of both Orthodox Mormons and post-Mormons is astonishingly similar to the stories that we hear today. The only difference is really the time period. You know, are there computers or are there not? That's pretty much the, the difference. And she draws both her Orthodox and her heterodox or post-Mormon characters so sympathetically that she can't help but identify with them. So, for example, today's Orthodox Mormons 
will see all of the beauties of their faith in the Orthodox characters that Virginia portrays. Perhaps even more clearly than before, it happened to me. I was like, oh my gosh, Mormonism is even cooler than I thought it was. Look at all these interesting things that she's coming up with. And then post-Mormons can remember the beauties of their former faith, but they can also glory in the new worlds that they found beyond it because she describes those so well. And so, and 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 then the Orthodox Mormons who who, who read about the post-Mormon characters get a sense of the honesty by which they came across their particular experiences. And so Virginia's novels are extraordinary in that both Orthodox and post-Mormons love them. That's amazing because they are both so fully presented. So that's why I think she could just burst onto the scene if people read novels anymore. <laughs> and if they would be more of it, and if these novels would be more available. Exactly. Exactly. We just need to have access to them. And maybe we can mention now here. So, so Signature republished three of probably, I, I, I'm not hearing from you about the other ones. I'm not quite so convinced anymore that, that these are the three most important. But, but anyways, three of her key Mormon novels were republished by Signature in the 1990s. Very nice editions. And now they're coming out with ebooks of them. Mm-hmm. It, yep. Which ones are those? Um, you're right. It's A Little Lower Than the Angels, which is her first not novel, the one that broke her onto the scene. And uh, The Evening and the Morning, which is just an extraordinary book. And then Where Nothing Is Long Ago, which is a collection of short stories, which are beautiful little gems. And the other ones, we're going to hopefully talk about some. You just have to search for them. <laughs> hopefully <laughs> your public library has has a copy, but yeah. Unlikely. Mm-hmm. Well, okay. Let's, Mike, how about you? Why why do you think Vardis Fisher uh, isn't, is valuable for us to talk about today? So Vardis Fisher was probably the inverse of Virginia Sorensen in some of the ways that Stephen says, because uh, both both Orthodox Mormons and post-Mormons, heterodox Mormons, hate Vardis Fisher. Um, he managed to offend almost everybody. Uh, Orthodox Mormons completely ignored children of God and, and just detested the, the gritty naturalism of his novels. Um, whereas most uh, post or most anti-Mormons or most people who had problems with the church, which is a whole lot of people in 1928, saw him as an apologist and thought he was too soft and thought he was too easy on the Mormons. So he... Uh, he managed to to offend uh, pretty much everybody, but he did this. This was sort of his thing. He was he was a controversialist. He liked offending both sides. He bragged about the fact that he was criticized for both being too hard and too soft on the Mormons. He, that was a point of pride for him. Uh, I think there are two reasons that uh, I have for a very long time thought that uh, that. The Mormon literary canon building just has to start with Vardis Fisher. He did two things that I think are crucial. Uh, first, he demonstrated the uh, the ideological viability of the Mormon cultural region as a distinct region that you could write fiction about. And some of that fiction could be about Mormons, and some of that fiction could be about non-Mormons. Some of that fiction could be about angry Mormons. 
But he identified geographically a region of the country uh, that's not quite the same as the Rocky Mountain West, but that includes Utah and Idaho and northern Arizona, uh, what we now call the Mormon cultural region. Uh, Ethan Jorgensen's uh, really good book on the structural transformation of the Mormon cultural sphere kind of delineates from a geographer's point of view this coherent region. And Fisher is the first one to demonstrate to the the sort of uh, American literati that this region exists as a distinct cultural area and it's worth writing about. And I think that was a really important thing, especially because he's writing at the same time that, that um, and he, he, his first novel comes out two years before uh, I'll Take My Stand, the, the Southern Agrarian Regionalist Manifesto that really defines literary regionalism. So that's the first thing that he does. The second thing that he does, and he does this with the children of God and, and really with no other book, is he demonstrates that stories about Mormons are commercially viable without Danites and, uh, and you know, wife-stealing. And of course, stories about Mormons have always been commercially viable, but they've been commercially viable as sensationalistic tropes. And Vardis Fisher... Uh, and a lot of people tried before. I mean, there were, as I say, in the 1930s, there were a lot of novels, some of them by, by fairly well-respected novelists, like Susan Ertz and The Proselyte. So there were a lot of novels that tried to take this, um, I'll call it, for lack of a better term, a middle way between just straight Mormon propaganda and straight anti-Mormon sensationalism. But Vardis Fisher is the first one to demonstrate the commercial viability of this. We're still waiting for the second one. <laughs> so, what what would what novel would you recommend uh, for today's readers to start with for Fisher? So, Children of God is the one that people are going to gravitate towards, or um, his very last novel called Mountain Man, which became a bestseller posthumously when Robert Redford bought the rights to make Jeremiah Johnson. Uh, those are the only two that most people are likely to find. Actually, it's, I brought three. But no, I, I brought samples. Um, and these are his three novels set in the Antelope Valley that aren't part of his autobiographical tetralogy. And I think there is three best novels. Uh, Toilers of the Hills, which is a novel about a, a very fictionalized version of his uncle, Doc, who, uh, Doc's name was actually Alma, but you know, that's a Mormon name. Um, but he, uh, he, he's, he's the pioneer who, who started growing, uh, wheat in uh, using dry farming techniques and really pioneered that area. And then the flip side, uh, dark Bridwell is a very, well, sorry, a very dark book about the Bridwell family who lived across the river from the, the Vardis Fisher family stand-ins here. Uh, it's a tragedy. It's it's uh, about um, people who are, are sort of vicious and lazy and cruel. And th this is about the family deteriorating. And really, it's a, it's a fall of the House of Usher, long day's journey into night kind of depressing, realistic, naturalistic novel until it comes out in paperback when it becomes... The Wild Ones, Ooh. and sells hundreds of thousands of copies 
in paperback. That's a novel, but it absolutely is not. And then the third one, um, April, is uh, his last novel set in the Antelope Valley. And this is uh, this is his only comic novel, and it's really delightful. I just I reread it this afternoon. Um, it's about a, a, a plain, not very attractive young woman named June who dreams of being an attractive woman named April, and uh, and her love affair with Saul Ingham, who is a uh, an atheist who almost becomes a Mormon bishop because he's really the only good man in town, and they end up getting together, um, and it's it's this really amazing blend of of Walter Mitty and sort of a Jane Austen heroine in a William Faulkner novel. That's when I actually got a copy of that, and that's when I'm I'm you convinced me to read, and so that's my next one to to go on. I think. Stephen, how about you? What what novels do you recommend uh, for from Virginia Sorensen? Uh, let's see. Um, it depends, partially, on if you can get your hands on it. But um, I would say that her best novel is definitely The Evening and the Morning. So when Dale Morgan inter- uh, reviewed this novel for the Saturday Evening Post, he wrote... In the space available to me, it is impossible to convey the whole richness of this novel. And it really is that good. It's it's written in prose, but it reads like poetry. Every sentence can be read and reread. And 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 every time it reveals another layer of beauty, it really it, it reveals another layer of meaning. And I don't really think you can read it without coming out the other side changed. Not not because it like has a thesis that's going to blow your mind, but because of how deeply it takes you into the character. She she makes you at one with all of the characters. So again, as Dale Morgan wrote, uh, the experience of reading her new book is that of having lived with people. And people who disturbingly, inexorably, through all their diversity and complexity, are yourself. Basically, I'd say it's a perfect knot, and it belongs on everybody's desert island. <laughs> but if you want something, so, or her lesser known no- novels, I'm actually going to say that if you really want to jump with both feet into everything that Virginia Sorensen can do, you should read Many Heavens. Guess what? I actually brought I want to be cool like Mike. So here's the evening and the morning. Bring the little lady closer. on the front. What's that? Bring a little closer to the screen so we can see it. It doesn't oh, okay. Oh, you know, yeah, it doesn't like and it's blurring it out. Oh, this is no help. There we go. Now one knows it's me. <laughs> and the lady on the front looks a lot like Virginia Sorensen, which is kind of funny. And then if you look at the back, it's the real Virginia Sorensen. So anyway, that's the evening and morning. But if you want to get a taste of everything she can do, many heavens, how do I make it? It just doesn't want to do it. That's a painting of Cash Valley on the front. She thought it was okay. So, many heavens. Um, It has all her stuff. It has her signature character depth. It's got her beautiful language. But with the added bonus of her most 
achingly beautiful love story. And this woman knew how to write love stories. And her most draw-jopping plot twists. Seriously, there were times in the book where I went, did that just happen? <laughs> It'll surprise you. And then an ending that absolutely blew the minds of 1950s Americans. It has everything. And I did a search last night and found they four copies for sale in various dark corners of the internet, the cheapest of which is $45. But it's totally worth it. <laughs> there's a copy in the Japanese library. I've got it on in the library. Really? Yep. There's a there's a, just a couple a couple of Virginia Sorensen's ones here and there that I can get on your, your library loan. So that's amazing. Yeah, there there are a few in university libraries here in the Intermountain West, like BYU, but it's hard. You got to pay money. Sorry, folks. I've been trying to persuade Signature to do Many Heavens Next. The Signatures has the, the ebooks for um, When Nothing Is Long Ago and um, Little Lord and the Angels. The evening in the morning, the ebook's not up yet on Amazon. It isn't, but um, they said that they're doing it. So I assume it will just be coming along. Yeah. Yeah. I got it on, the, on their list. Yeah. Um, Can I just say one more thing about that? Um, Spoilers of the Hills, so that the first Florida's Fisher novel entered the public domain on January 1st of this year. Oh. It's a 1928 novel. Those books are going to be republishable fairly soon. And uh, I happen to be the director of the press. So, just say it. And that's, that's 1928, so, so it's another 20 years before we get to the, the Virginia's novels, unfortunately. Yeah. No, Fisher's first three or four novels in the next couple of years are going to become available. I'm excited. Yeah. Because they're also really hard to find. Uh, I, I might have the only copy of Dark Ridwell in, in the country, and that's because Artist Partial gave it to me about five years ago uh, when I started writing about Artist Fisher. Shout out to Artist. Thank you. Now, the paperback is very easy to find. <laughs> so it's the same words inside, but just with... The same words inside. So you can try and cover. Okay. You just have to look for the wild ones, not Dark Bridwell. So, Stephen, you said that uh, Sorensen, more than any other Lost Generation authors, had a remarkable ability to empathize with her with all of her characters. You know, the kind of the, the, the heroes and the villains, although there are no real villains in her story, but... Um, and that you saw that that while she was bringing Mormonism to conversation with the rest of America, uh, like all these uh, Lost Generation authors were doing, that more than others, that she took a path of atonement and ushered in the most Christ-like novels of the Mormon tradition. What can can you explain that a little bit more and maybe give some examples from the books of how she did that? Yeah. So, um, so during its early years, Mormons. <laughs> were thinking mainly about survival because they were constantly being kicked out of one place and trying to rebuild in another place. So they, during their early years, identified very much with the Old Testament, where the Israelites were trying to build their own civilization, and also with the Book of Mormon, which is a very Old Testament-style narrative. Because in both of these books, God makes promises 
and the people either obey to their benefit or they disobey to their destruction. So when Virginia and Vardis started writing, the Mormons were fairly well established by now. They weren't worried about survival anymore. Now they were worried about their identity now that they had to interact with the rest of the world. So Virginia was interesting in that she broke with the Old Testament Book of Mormon style of storytelling. And instead, she wrote novels that I think are much more like the New Testament. So instead of judging her characters, she delves deeply into them until her readers sympathize with them. She helps us to become at one with them. So, for example, on this star, let me give you a picture of its not very interesting cover. Yeah, this is just not helping. I need to turn off the blur. Oh, well. So anyway, in On This Star, her heterodox or post-Mormon char character, whose name is Eric Erickson, he, th he thinks at one point in the book, when he's returned to uh, Temple Valley, or Templeton, which is based on Manti, he, he thinks, as he's thinking about Mor Mormonism, he's up at the front of the congregation playing the organ because he's he's an organ player out in the outside world. He thinks, how could it be at once as true as work and as fabulous as fairyland? How could it be at once a hard-headed cooperation and a visionary isolation? One went away and some must go. There was not room for all here anymore. And out of sight of the fields and the temples, the fable turned into a ridiculous fantasy. One came back and walked strongly on the true and substantial land. Truth, right, sin. Here, one could give them singular meanings. So you can see the basic contours of Virginia's mind in that paragraph. She sees Mormonism from the inside and the outside simultaneously. She can hold its strengths and its weaknesses in a sentence. So Keats, of course, called this negative capability, and I think that Virginia had it in spades. And, you know, that the on the star with this character who goes out into goes to the east and then comes back and sees his community in this in this with new eyes but but also has a certain degree of, res of respect for it um maureen whipple's plan was to do something very similar to that now maureen whipple wrote the giant joshua about saint george in times of polygamy from the 1860s through the 1880s she had these plans to write two more novels and she finished maybe a third of the second novel, and that's that which we published in our collection that, that BCC Press put out. Um, but she had a pretty detailed notes on what she was going to do with the other, with the full series. And she talks about uh, this granddaughter of the Clory uh, character who goes to the East and studies music and, and, and goes to Europe and uh, becomes estranged from uh, the church completely, but then does come back and is involved in a musical presentation and plays come coming saints and, and falls in love with, you know, maybe not 
maybe not reconverted to the religion, but is uh, kind of reconverted to the community and decides to rejoin the community. <laughs> it's it's very similar to the Virginia's novel. Very similar. How interesting. Yeah, yeah. And, and she had that plan from about 1939. So, um, you know, kind of similar thoughts going on at that time. And then it's one of the great tragedies that Maureen, her personal life, things that was going on with her, she was never able to finish those novels. Uh, okay, great. Thank you. Um, so maybe let's talk about, and that maybe brings us to, so these authors both did not feel at home in their, uh, in Mormon societies it was, or at least not completely at home. Um, now, Mike, you said that you thought that Fisher admired the Mormonism of Joseph Smith and Brigham Young, that, that, that they were inventive and economically and, and socially, you know, these changes in the family. But uh, he thought the current uh, LDS church and society of, of the 20s and 30s and 40s, he was not impressed with them. Um, so maybe tell me about that. What, what, what was it that he didn't, that, that he didn't appreciate about the current society? And then we can see maybe what, what uh, Virginia thought as well. So um, Fisher wrote in several interviews and several articles that the Mormonism of Joseph Smith and Brigham Young was vital and interesting and full of spiritual power. And that after the manifesto, and that's where he puts it, I mean, the third part of Children of God is about the 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 Wolfram Woodruff's manifesto and the aftermath. Um, after that, it, it became, and in his words, just another Protestant sect. So he believes that uh, that Mormonism was interesting and really worth writing about until it gave up its two key values, uh, plural marriage and uh, economic communalism. Uh, he, you know, the third part of Children of God takes place in Orderville, which is a lot like Centerville, which is a, a united order. And so he thinks that, uh, that when Mormons gave that up, um, they... They kept the doctrines that didn't offend anybody, and they got rid of everything that was offensive, and then they started what Stephen was talking about, this uh, accommodation where they tried to accommodate themselves to the nation. And he, he just wasn't terribly interested in Mormonism after the manifesto. And this, I am pretty sure, is why the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints completely ignored children of God. John Witzow wrote uh, a three-paragraph review in the Improvement Era, where most of the reviews were one-paragraph little capsule reviews, uh, and he submitted it to the First Presidency, and I, I have him writing a letter to Richard Evans saying that uh, he's not sure if they will approve it, but they should, because this is an important book and it needs a rebuttal. And then we never hear from it again. You know, that, that letter disappears. Um, I managed to find it with with the help of uh, William Davis, Bill Davis, who's, who's in Los Angeles, in the UCLA special collections, uh, in the Brigham Young movie folder uh, for 20th Century Fox, because Witzow sent it to the producers of Brigham Young movie. And that's the only reason that I was able to find that review at all. But it got spiked. The church decided they were going to pay absolutely no attention to it. Now, the reorganized church did write a full pamphlet rebutting its its uh, central premise, which was that Joseph Smith was a polygamist. 
which they did not believe at the time. Uh, so they did take it on. And a lot of common commenters, including um, including some of the, the most prominent scholars who, who studied uh, Bardis Fisher, um, used that and said that the, the Mormon church uh, repudiated children of God, which it did not. The reorganized Church of Jesus Christ, the Latter-day Saints, repudiated children of God. Uh, the the Utah-based Brighamite Mormon Church completely ignored it because when it came out in 1939, they were in the midst of a huge set of issues with their fundamentalist polygamist base. Uh, this is when J. Ruben Thark was going around and writing license plates down in, in meetings in uh, of polygamous families. This is uh, just a couple of years before Richard Lyman is excommunicated for what was really a polygamous relationship. Uh, so the church is so embroiled in a battle with its own polygamists, uh, trying to get rid of them, trying to separate them and excommunicate them all and root them out, that it's not going to pay any attention at all to a novel whose really main argument is that Mormonism isn't very interested anymore since the manifesto, because that's too close to the polygamist's argument. And how much power do you think, uh, whether the Witso, you know, he did he did his monthly reviews in the Improvement Era, um, how much power do you think him doing a negative review of, like he did for, you know, he kind of mixed reviews of Marine Whipple and Virginia Sorensen's books, and he, he ignored Children of God. Was that very powerful, do you think, in the Mormon cultural world? I think that it it depressed sales in Utah, and I think that with both A Little Lower Than the Angels and The Giant Joshua, the publishers were expecting larger Utah sales than they got, and I think that's why those books didn't do as well as, as they should have done. Both of those books did sold the copies that they were projected to sell outside of Utah, but they dramatically underperformed in Utah. And I think that has a lot to do with Witso's uh, one-paragraph uh, capsule review. Now, Children of God was was a different story because that was never going to sell in Utah. Uh, I mean, it, it wasn't designed to sell in Utah. It had a front-page endorsement on the New York Times. So the Times book review ran a, a front-page story about it. It sold what it needed to sell, and, and the publishers never figured that it would sell in Utah. So, so yes, I think that that the reviews in the improvement era. I mean, Witso was very much um, a literary kingmaker at this time. He he took Paul Bailey's book um, for this Mike Laurie and turned it into a bestseller by promoting it in the improvement era, and that was sort of a uh, more faithful rebuttal to Children of God. Um, so I think that the, those reviews. They told Mormons whether or not it was okay to read this book, and and that's you know that's for for a novel like this that's twenty or thirty thousand sales at the time. Um, by the way, do you know the two books that about Mormons that sold the best in Utah uh, in the nineteen thirties were neither of them were by Mormons. Uh, Susan Ertz's The Proselyte sold very well because it treated Mormons very gently. And then a book, and I don't remember the name, it was a Hollywood screenwriter. The title of the book was Hell and Hallelujah. It was a Mormon migration novel, extremely uh, favorable to the Mormons. Um, 
uh, George Albert Smith um, talked about it from the general conference pulpit, and it, it became a pretty good seller in Utah. Uh, and both of them were quoted in church materials. The church really liked novels about them that treated them well, but they didn't sell outside of Utah. Those novels didn't make any kinds of sales inroads with the rest of the world because they were seen as just too uh, fawning and favorable uh, of the Mormons. So, uh, so yeah. How long did they keep up that tradition of, of book doing book reviews in the Proven Era? Uh, I think they had book reviews of some sort until the Improvement Era went the way of all correlation in 1970. Uh, and, but I think that really Widso uh, was the one who, who did the bulk of those. And uh, I think when he died, that they got a lot. They, they, they reduced the number of those reviews. It was called On the Bookshelves. And... Um, okay, great. So Stephen, tell us about what how was uh, Virginia received in, in Mormon cultural uh, capitals of Utah in that area? Um, yes, she got a very lukewarm review for a little lower than the angels from, from Witso. Although at the end he said, she has undoubted literary talent. There's much to be expected from her, but I don't think he ever reviewed another book from her. But, uh, it's true that the, the Mormon community generally has never fully accepted or celebrated Virginia's books. And at, at first it was because, as I said earlier, her stories didn't fit the Old Testament Book of Mormon home literature walled. But then her books went out of print, and so we never really had a chance to re-encounter her. So even when Mormon scholars tried to reintroduce her, like in the early 80s, and then when her stuff came out again in the late 90s, there just wasn't a really good way to get everyone copies of her books so that she could be widely read. So that's what's so exciting about today. We have ebooks. Everybody can get a chance to read these marvelous novels. And that was actually the goal of my biography, is to get people excited about her. And I've already had a little bit of success because Signature did decide to put out these three books in, in ebook form. And it was because I wrote this and they said, hey, we should ride this wave, right? So I have my fingers crossed that she'll finally get the Mormon readership that she deserves. So I've read Little Lord of the Angels and We're Nothing as Long Ago so far and, and Plain Girl, one of her um, oh, yeah. novels. And I just love them all so much. And just the things that you said, it all reverberated with me so much. And I, I was so impressed by her writing. Um, I, don't, I don't know why I put off so long reading, reading her things. So again, thank you for introducing me to her. Uh, so we, we, you mentioned, like I said, the, that these Mormon scholars um, had kind of reintroduced... Whipple and Sorensen, especially, as holding them up as, as good examples. So Mary Bradford did this research on Sorensen in the, well, I guess from the 50s she started doing that, but, but, but you know, and she was an editor of Dialogue in the late 70s, early 80s. Yeah, and so she, she had like, she had quite a bit with her and had an interview with her in the Dialogue. And Jean England was talking about her and, and Whipple a lot. Um, they don't seem to. They don't seem to have really um, been ex as excited about Children of God. Uh, well, 
Leonard Arrington was very excited about Children of God, wrote a paper about Vargas Fisher's Mormon roots, and then Fisher's widow, Opal Laurel Holmes, sued him in the church and wrote all of these letters saying, Vargas Fisher was not a Mormon. How dare you accuse him of being a Mormon? You never liked him before. And so people, while Opal was alive, people were afraid to talk about Vargas Fisher because they would get attacked. They would get letter-writing campaigns by by this um, increasingly uh, aggressive uh, widow who, who really thought that her husband was going to become a major writer and she didn't want anything as tawdry as Mormonism uh, sullying his good name. Now, the great irony is that if anyone is ever going to remember Bartus Fisher, it's going to be the Mormons. You know, there's just nobody else has shown interest in Fisher in the last 40 or 50 years. Uh, but at the time, because she was quite a bit younger than he was, so she lived until, oh, I think the mid-1980s. So in the 70s, anyone connected with Mormonism who wrote anything about Artis Fisher got letters. Uh, she wrote letters to Spencer W. Kimball, said, please discipline Leonard Arrington for saying this. She, she republished some of his books with this, Vardis Fisher is not a Mormon. So there were other circumstances that prevented Fisher from really being part of, of this reclamation project. Now, so it seems like there's kind of a feeling that great Mormon literature needs to come from people on the margins and that this marginality is 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 efficacious for insight and an opportunity to write good fiction and usually defined as kind of church membership you know or are you within ex acceptable ideas of what it is to be mormon um uh, sorry um now in the 60s and 70s there's there's a creation of the space of mormon literature of faithful realism or Dean England calls it the third generation uh with the establishment of journals like Dialogue at Sunstone and the BYU English Department's support of such literature in the 70s and 80s, gave a space for this kind of self-defining believing Mormons to publish challenging quality literature. And maybe at times the Mormon world has been more willing to accept marginal personalities. Uh, that's kind of been up and down. But anyways, do you think that this is still, this is still something that's efficacious, this kind of marginal position, marginal personality, uh, is that something that you think helps leads to great literature in one way or another? Definitely, I think. Uh, you, you rarely see great literature from any culture or region coming from the ideological center of that region because almost everything produced in the center is propaganda. Uh, you know, William Faulkner had a real love-hate relationship with the South. Um, the, the great Egyptian novelist Nadiv Mahfouz uh, and uh, the Pakistani novelist Salman Rushdie are among the, the best Muslim writers in the world, and also the Turkish writer, Oran Pamuk. Uh, none of them have a very comfortable relationship with Islam. Uh, you, you almost always have the people on the outside who can occupy, and this is exactly what Stephen said, who can occupy the, the insider and the outsider perspective. They're the ones who are going to produce, uh, in almost every situation, the literature that's worth talking 
and writing about. Um, anyone who's on the outside completely can never sympathize with the people on the inside. Anyone who's completely on the inside cannot get outside of the culture enough uh, to see it the way that other people see it. And, and I think that, that that's why in most religions, most communities, most regions, most countries, uh, the, the enduring literature always comes from people on the margins because they're the ones that can inhabit the multiple perspectives that are required, I, I think, for a novel or, or a work of poetry or drama to really be great. Yeah, the the reason that is true is because it's just because of the way dramatic structure works. the The effect is dramatic structure works on conflict, and if there isn't conflict, then there isn't drama. And drama is the thing that compels the human brain. And so, when you write from a place of little conflict, where the answer is already known from 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 the beginning you have what I call a landing pad story. And a lot of people really like landing pad stories when they're from a community and the story says, look how nicely we, nicely we landed this question on the landing pad of our community. And everybody in the community is like, this is great. But if you want to do some, make some something that will do something more, you have to make what I call a launching pad story which means uh, you have to stretch the, the conflict very tight because that's the only way, it's like a rubber band, right? That's the only way you can get anything to go anywhere is it's got to be stretched tight so that it can launch you. And it's the power of the launch itself that makes a great piece of literature, not where it lands. If people find themselves going places that they've never gone before, and thinking things and feeling things that they haven't felt before, that is a good story. Not with them coming to the end and saying, and thus we see that. So, can a believing Mormon write great literature, do you think? I think a believing Mormon can write great literature. Probably not about Mormonism. <laughs> And we've seen that happen in, in genre literature, right? Because we've got people like Stephanie Meyer and Orson Scott Card and Brandon Sanderson, who indeed have had huge followings and have not written about Mormonism for the things that they wrote about. You can feel the Mormonism in the background, but they found another value to hold on to and so that they can make that launch happen. But it isn't in Mormonism. It has to be somewhere else because the tension has to be there. There has to be tension. There's no way around it. Well, I hope that, I hope for my Mormon friends <laughs> that that, um, the, that that kind of marginality and that kind of tension can still be found maybe in other ways, in other directions. Like, so Stephen Peck is a very interesting character who does, I think, does great literature. Um, yeah. And who, you know, for all, all, appears to be, you know, happy in being, being a Mormon, but can do that kind of thing. So hopefully it's not, I think, I think for at this time, in the lost generation times, it was kind of marginality. If you're kind of marginal in some way, it was kind of natural for you to leave the church or not. 
hopefully now there's enough space where people can take their own interesting ideas and 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 unique twists on things and still have their faith be we you know what they want their faith to be and you're well, absolutely right about Stephen Peck Stephen Peck writes wonderful things and he absolutely draws his tensions from all over the freaking place it's not just drawn for Mormonism that's why he succeeds I, speaking as Steve's publisher uh, <laughs> I've got to get that in there uh, he does a marvelous job writing uh, tension-filled stories about Mormonism and being on the inside of Mormonism. I do not think that most members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints would find his fiction inspired. It's not propagandistic, and I, I think that um, that most most people in the center of the culture are looking for something else. I mean, I think the kind of challenges that Steve gives his reader um, are, are are going to be challenges that are embraced by people who are on the edges, on the fringes, not all the way out, but at least towards the edge. Uh, and I think that that's, that's where literature happens. I have a collection of short fiction that I edit, I didn't write, I edited, called The Path and the Gate, which will be coming out from Signature in later 2023, which Stephen edited for me. Thank you, Stephen. And um, I think it has a lot of great literature. It's, it's a mixture of Mormon and post-Mormon authors. And I Stephen Peck has a story in there. Uh, William Morris has a story in there. I think there's quite a few authors that, that can do, yeah, really great, interesting things. Again, where they're drawing from all of the... Uh, okay, Stephen, tell us a little bit about Virginia and children's literature. I was really um, interested in this discussion of how she uses children's lantern consciousness as opposed to adult spotlight consciousness. I'd never heard that before. <laughs> yeah, it was it, it was pretty interesting to write about Virginia because, especially about her children's literature career, because there is almost zero about it out in the world. Almost nobody has written about her children's literature. It's bizarre. So I got to kind of be a pioneer myself. It was kind of disconcerting to tell you the truth. Like, I must be missing something here. What's going on? But um, this is the interesting thing about Virginia and children's literature. Most children's literature is about how children become adults. If you think about the big um, sellers like Harry Potter, like uh, the the Mockingjay, like the, the the Hunger Games, those are the big ones. You 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 read about how children become adults through encountering these gigantic difficulties and overcoming them through hook and crook. That's the way most children's literature goes. That's what we expect. But Virginia did something utterly different. And it it's it's weird when you first go in there. You're like, what is going on? What is going on is that uh, Alison Gop Gopnik, who is a children's psychologist, has these, this, this idea that children have lantern consciousness. And what that means is that, you know, when you're holding the lantern, you can see in a diffused uh, circle sphere around you. And you study what's around you in your sort of immersed in what's around you. 
And then uh, adults have what she calls spotlight consciousness. So they focus on something. They go in a, in, in a direction. They can do things. They make stuff. And so what you see in most children's literature is people going from lantern consciousness to spotlight con consciousness. And that success is when you get to spotlight consciousness. And so Virginia said, lantern consciousness is really, really, really important. And I'm going to show you why. And so you get to stay in lantern consciousness the entire story, and you get to see why, both through experience and through the the, the structure of, of, of the narrative, why it's so important. So what happens usually in a Virginia Sorensen uh, children's novel is that a child finds herself in the confluence of two cult cultures. She's she's pulled in this direction and this direction. So one of them, a a Presbyterian girl from Virginia, moves to Utah next to some Mormons, a a, a three wife Mormon fam family, and she starts to get to know them. Despite the fact that her mother that that her aunt runs an anti polygamist newspaper and runs the home for escaped and repentant polygamous wives, <laughs> and so um, she starts to bring these two worlds together because. She has lantern consciousness, and then there's there's an, an, another story about a, a, a black boy who starts to get acquainted with an Appalachian family on the other side of of the block through their music, and so these kids don't necessarily do anything. They don't necessarily go on adventures. They just soak in what is around them and the things that are are around them um, are competing and contrasting, and so what gets made inside the lantern consciousness of, of, of these children is sort of what makes up the story. And so in the example of the girl who moves to, to Utah, the grandfather of the Mormon fam family is dying on Pioneer Day. And all of the doctors who are Mormons are up the canyon celebrating Pioneer Day. And so this Presbyterian girl happens to know a Presbyterian doctor who isn't up the canyon and thus saves the life of the grandpa. So per just being a child and just using lantern consciousness and just soaking in what is around her instead of making judgments like the spotlight consciousnesses around her are what make things work, work out. So the interesting thing is sometimes that approach didn't work. There were two books where it really didn't work out and it's just lantern consciousness the whole way but those are still interesting because you so one of them is lottie's lock locket where a girl just soaks in the culture of denmark and if you want to see the culture of denmark in a child's point of view it's exquisite the other one is is a girl in morocco and again you get to see morocco through child's eyes and a lantern consciousness and it's fascinating but they just don't have stories and things they're not very interesting. So that's what she did. Yeah, so you, you quoted some reviews where they said, just these nice people doing nice things. <laughs> but I think people love them. People really like, especially the the two, that 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 Plain Girl and Miracles on Maple Hill. Um, but yeah, not not these driving hero's journey stories. Well, okay, let's go back to this. Well, okay, here's my question for you. 
How would you compare, we'll get a little personal here, your own journey as an author and commentator on Mormon society with these lost generation authors? Steve, can we start with you? Sure. <laughs> so, um, first of all, I need to establish that I'm not nearly as talented as any of these people, so I won't compare myself to them in that way at all. But you're also right that, as we've mentioned, uh, we are living through a very similar period to the one that they were in, in inhabiting. We, we, they were from a generation where the Mormon world changed physically, and we're from a generation where Mormonism changed informationally. So, um, you know, I was in college when I got my first email address, and the internet just got bigger from there. And I've been involved with Sunstone for 15 years now. Blogs were just getting going when I started here, and Twitter was only two years old. So both generations had to rethink their worldview from the ground up. So one of the reasons why I've been so engaged with Mormonism, despite being on sort of the blunt end of the internet assault on the information of Mormonism, is actually because of something microed a long time ago. Um, I don't remember what it was called. I don't remember where it was published, but it was something about how he had been enjoying a lot of ethnic literature, and he was wishing that he belonged to an interesting ethnic group too. And then he realized that he did. That was the I gave at UVU, um, the Eugene England lecture in 2000, I think. Was it that? So I was actually personally present for there. that because I was working for Gene. You were there as like the research assistant. Yeah, yeah, I was his research assistant. So apparently I heard this with my own ears. Because at the time I was the chair of an English department in West Virginia that had an Appalachian literature program. Oh yeah. And yeah. And so and so I took that with 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 me because I, I got to sit in on these uh seminars that Gene did with uh, scholars from all kinds of different faith traditions, and I found out, my gosh, Mormonism really is interesting. And so, um, Mormonism is worth engaging on many different levels, and I figure, why not enrich the possibilities of engagement even more? And recently, I, um, I've, I've also been thinking about this in a hero's journey sort of way, I kind of wonder if a lot of what's going to be hap happening is that a lot of people are going off on hero's journeys from uh, Mormonism. And the interesting thing about the hero's journey is that the way that you know your hero's journey is over is that you get healed. You get the elixir, right? That's sort of the term for um, what you get when you finally... Or your death. Or, or your death, but that's called a tragedy, right? But, but you get the, the elixir and then you return to the community. And so the way that you know that you've completed the, the hero's journey is that you can return to your community without getting infected by its illness, because that's the reason why you left in the first place. I mean, think about the Matrix, right? He comes from a very ill, very dysfunctional place, and he's able to come back and not be infected by it because of the elixir that he was able to get through his experiences. And so when I'm being really optimistic, I think, look at all these people who are going off on hero's journeys. What is going to happen when they get healed and they get the elixir 
and they return. And we have all of these people who can no longer, you know, get the unique illnesses that Mormonism has because every community has their unique illnesses. Well, what will happen is that a whole bunch more people will be prepared to go off on these heroes' journeys, and then they'll come back, and Mormonism will become this staging ground for heroes' journeys and become even more extraordinary than it is now. That's what I'm hoping. Fingers crossed. We'll see what happens. A lot of people think I'm way too optimistic. I've always, I love your, your essays that you, you've been doing lately on podcasts before that in print and sunstone. Um, I, I love the way that, that you help re refigure my view of people in their various times in their journey. And again, like Virginia, you're so empathetic to, to people in, in all their different various situations. So thank you for all those. Mike, how about you? How do you, how do you compare yourself to these authors or how? So I, I was thinking a lot about how I compare myself to Bardis Fisher and in, in many ways, not at all. I think we're very, very different people. Um, but th there's, there's a core that I really understand what Bardis Fisher is doing, I think, because I'm doing the same thing. And, and that is he's somebody who wanted to get away from Mormonism and be a great writer and he was continually drawn back to Mormonism because he, he couldn't understand himself without, without engaging with his faith tradition. He, you know, he, uh, he even when he was writing about, um, other things, like I brought this one, the, uh, the, this is my favorite of his, um, Testament of Man series, the Island of the Innocent, which is about the Maccabean revolts, but it's also about how somebody interacts with a faith tradition that people he loves belongs to. This is about a, a Jewish uh, philosopher who marries a, a Jew during the Maccabean uh, rebellion, and he becomes Jewish, or he converts out of love for her. He's trying to understand everything he writes. He's trying to understand himself, and he can't understand himself without understanding Mormonism. And I think that's really where I am too. I didn't go into Mormon literature as a graduate student. I went into uh, the British 18th century and I spent, you know, a lot of years writing articles about Defoe and Milton and Bunyan and Richardson, um, the, the that group of writers. And, and But I kept being drawn back. And I do an essay here or I do something here, give a talk there. I kept being drawn back to my own faith tradition because I didn't understand it well enough to understand myself. And I think that's what I still do. I, I'm still trying to grapple with this big thing called Mormonism because it's so much a part of me that as much as I try, and this is where I feel like Barbara's vision, as much as he tried to get away from Mormonism, he never could. It always dominated his writing. And I think that I have come to accept the fact that, that I'm the same way. Uh, as much as I would love to go out and be uh, an academic who writes about all kinds of things that have nothing to do with Mormonism, everything I write seems to come back to my own faith, my own faith tradition. And, and so I, I pretty much have come to the conclusion that I might as well just embrace that because it's going to happen no matter how hard I try not to. And you write a lot about uh, scriptures 
you do a lot of commentary and you know, this book about Job and on the BCC press, or not BCC press, on, on the By Common Consent blog, you do a lot of writing on what, you know, what we're doing in the, in the Come Follow Me scriptures that, yeah. in that time. What, what's the draw there? Why are you so interested in? So I've also enough of an academic that I don't, I can't really study something unless I produce something. Like if I'm going to study the scriptures, I have to write something about them because it just it it seems alien to me to spend a lot of time reading about something or studying about something and not have something that I produce at the end of it. That's the publication. So what you know the the book um, Buried Treasures, which was a collection of my blog posts from 2016, that was just my daily scripture reading with an end product every week. It was just a paper I turned in at the end of, of class uh, because I couldn't effectively study unless I did that. And uh, I'm doing the same thing with the New Testament this year. I, I haven't announced it quite as much, but I'm every week I'm, I'm reading it and really spending some time studying the Come Follow Me uh, scripture, and then I'm producing a paper because that's just who I am. I read stuff and then I write about it. So unless I have that end point, I don't feel a motivation to study. I don't feel a motivation to read. Uh, and so uh, I just, I have to give myself homework. And uh, people on the blog just have to suffer through it or keep on scrolling. But that's, that's how I relate to myself um, is I produce something for some kind of audience. Well, you're my go-to person for uh, for scriptural analysis. I just recently gave a talk in my ward about uh, Sermon on the Mount, and definitely your posts on that were my key resource for that. So thank you so much for that. Hey, Stephen, tell us about uh, Sunstone. You've been there. I th you're definitely the longest tenured editor ever at Sunstone. Not uh, quite. Helbert was there for 18 years, but I am creeping up on him. Really? Okay. <laughs> he was there a long time. Um, he was. So it's gone through a lot of changes in the last decade, as you know, all magazines uh, have. So can you tell us about that, and tell us about the changes, and you know what's going on these days at Sunstone. Yeah. Well, I guess for anyone who has no idea what Sunstone is, we've been publishing a magazine since uh, 1974, and we've been holding conferences since 1979. We've gone through various levels of how often we publish, just depending on money, mostly money. But uh, at the moment, after we survived the COVID pandemic, that was a hard hit on us since most of our money comes from our events and suddenly we couldn't have any for a long time. Um, right now, we're kind of doing what the MHA does and we publish a magazine yearly and we hold our conferences in the US and the UK. In fact, our uh, call for papers for the Salt Lake Sun uh, Summer Symposium is up right now. Uh, that's at sunstone.org. And of course, I would love both of you to come. In fact, uh, Mike actually sold out of BBC or BCC titles at the last one. Yes. It was great. <laughs> so uh, in addition to those things, uh, we really got into putting out podcasts and I'm in charge of the Sunstone podcast, which is largely a collection of our best symposium sessions. In fact, our latest episode was a 
fascinating talk given by the former dialogue editor, Linda King Newell, about how she and Balleen Tippetts wrote Mormon Enigma. And then Lindsay Hanson Park is in charge of the Sunstone Mormon History Podcast, which is great fun. You did. So that's essentially what's going on at Sunstone at the moment. Okay, great. Well, is there any, anything that you wanted to say that you didn't weren't able to say in our discussion? I wanted to say thank you for bringing me on. I kind of feel like uh, someone walking along giants being with you too. Thank you. I'm so glad to have you. Again, both of your, your work has meant so much to me since got to know you first on AML list, I think, in the late 90s. Both of you around 10 ago. That's right. Thank you so much, Michael and Stephen, for joining me and talking about these authors that, that I love. I'm so excited to um, get the word out about their works and hope that more people read them. Hopefully, uh, now again, as Stephen said, with ebooks, more of these books will become available in, in the near future. Dialogue Book Report is uh, produced by me and Daniel Foster Smith and with music by Daniel Foster Smith and help from Emily Jensen. And I hope that you all continue to listen to all the various great podcasts that Dialogue and Sunstone put out. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you, Andrew. It was a lot of fun. Welcome to Bristlecombe Firesides, casual conversation around a virtual fireside where we discuss faith, the earth, the universe, and everything. We are your hosts, Abby and Madison. The central question we ask each other, as well as poets, artists, activists, and other guests around our virtual fireside, is what does it mean to belong to the earth? So if you've ever wondered how to reground your faith and spiritual practice in the stuff of the earth, this is the podcast for you. Catch up on previous seasons by subscribing to Bristlecone Firesides on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. From the Aspen Mountains, Juniper Forests, Red Rock Deserts, and Salty Lakes of Utah, we wish you peace and goodness as you strive to find yourself in the family of the earth. Dialogue Podcast Network. <laughs>